Welcome everybody and thank you for tuning into the Spark Experience. My name is Mario Matichek and I'm your host. If you're listening to this podcast, it means that you're interested in change and learning new things. On the Spark Experience, we talk about business strategies, mindset strategies and coaching strategies to ignite your potential. Today we are joined by Liam Smith, who has an incredible coaching journey to share with us all. Liam has a proven track record with transitioning former Junior World number 1s to the ATP Tour and becoming Grand Slam contenders. He's the coach of Gail Monfils, who is currently number 9 in the world. Today we are so lucky to be joined by such an open-minded and humble individual who will share what he has learned over the last 20 years in coaching and business. Make sure you stay tuned so you can implement some of these strategies in your own life. Welcome everybody to the Spark Experience. It's an absolute honor to have Liam Smith on the show today where we will discuss what it takes to become a Grand Slam contender and developing world-class tennis players. Welcome Liam and thank you for your time. Oh, thanks Mario. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for, uh, for having me on the show. No problem. Liam, would you mind giving the listeners a rundown of your journey so far and what you're looking to achieve in the next chapter of your life? Yeah, I've been coaching uh, 20 years now. So I started at the club level, adults, juniors and worked my way up and sort of worked with 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 16-year-olds, all through the different pathways, ITF Junior Circuit, Futures Challenges, WTA, TP Tour and different things. And over many, many years, directed some academies, owned my own academy in partnership with a, with a former top five player here in the US as well in the past. And then came over to Australia, took a position as a national head coach for, for Tennis Australia and gave my best effort to spend some time trying to developed some, some good, uh, talented Australian players and uh, then returned back to the US in 2015 and have spent the rest of the, the last five years just working on the ATP Tour. Mm, interesting. So it sounds like you've, uh, you started pretty much at the grassroots and built your way up over your, you know, the two-decade career so far. Like, yeah. Is, like, but did you... <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And I think and I think that's important for everyone that's listening is that it, there's no real overnight success. Like people will see you now and be like, yeah, you know, he's coaching the top players in the world, but you had to start somewhere. Oh, yeah, I've been to, I think I've been to every, literally every Futures and Challenges tournament on the planet, to be honest. Uh, mm. And all the different junior ITF tournaments in Africa and in Asia and all over the place. So yeah, sort of, when you look back now, it's it's good because I, I feel like I learned a lot. And when you when you made mistakes, they were less uh, less important moments, and you could learn from it and improve. And so it was a good journey. But there was many times where I felt like, geez, you know, am I ever going to get to work with somebody better or up into another level, and, and so on? So yeah, it's a good thing. And now when I look back, for sure. Interesting. So when you first started, did you always have the goal of wanting to, to be on the ATP tour coaching the players, like Grand Slam players? Well, you know, I, I started coaching. I was playing at a junior level. I played sort of futures tournaments and things, and I didn't really have the financial backing to, to continue playing. As, as so many players uh, have that experience in the, in the lower ranking parts of our sport, which is another topic for another day, but that, that, mm. that needs to improve. So I did, you know, I love the sport and I wanted to stay involved in the sport. So I said, okay, how can I, how can I do that? So I started coaching, it was a hitting partner, working at club level, then went to different big name academies around the world where I got more experience and became hitting partners for high level players. And then was able to start to coach some of the better juniors in the country or in the world. And, you know, you sort of just go step by step, but I was always quite 
you know, quite ambitious to to keep moving up, to keep learning and improving. And and you know, if I was if I was ever struggling, I, I also asked for help. And I think you know that's one thing that I definitely would like to say is that there's a lot of people over the course of my career that helped me. I was very fortunate to over the journey come across many great people. Some some are legends of the sport, and some people have maybe never even heard of. But they sort of helped me. I had a lot of mentors and a lot of people that gave me confidence and an opportunity here or there. And then I just gave it my best shot and and made good on on the on the help that I got. So I think that's part of the process too. Is that you do need help. It's whether you're a coach or a player, you you, you need help, and you need to be willing to and open to ask for it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's an interesting topic because that like a lot of people I feel like are afraid to just ask and you know, you're going to ask as well. And some people are going to say no, but that's part of the game. You know, you have to accept that, you know, rejection is going to happen. You might just have to find a different way on how you can get in contact with that person. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, if, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, you know, it's like, somebody doesn't reply you and then you try again a few months later or you bump into someone at the tournament that happens to know that person and then you you, you can find a way through and sometimes you, you can be lucky too that certain people are receptive in certain moments of time and other moments of time things going on in their life or whatever they just don't have the ability to help you in that moment but uh, mm. you know you just got to keep keep trying to improve and and I think uh, yeah I, I was I was fortunate in many ways with the people that helped me Oh, good, good. That's, yeah, that's a, that's a good little tip for everyone listening to just, yeah, you know, you can't get to great places without having a, a team or people to help you get there. It's important. You're coaching Gail Monfils at the moment. What's that like? What do you enjoy the most about it? And what are some of the biggest challenges that you face with him? Yeah, I mean, he's a great guy. We, we've known each other quite a long time. And um, he's different than the, the personality that maybe people always see. He's, he's a very um, nice, calm guy and pretty hardworking. Actually, people don't always realize that, you know, sometimes the, the sort of talented athletes and the trick shots and all the different things sort of lend themselves to people feeling like you're kind of one of those talented, casual kind of people, but he's actually quite diligent and, and a pretty hard worker. So uh, yeah, we have a lot of fun. We, we work hard and, uh, and we have fun doing it. it it's good. I mean, it's a, it's a tough challenge because whenever you have a player that has that level or capability or talent you as a coach you feel that pressure that you want to help them to 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 be even better and they're already very good so it's sort of that responsibility that you take on and sort of almost uh, an extra expectations you put on yourself to, to to try to get better results or help them to do better than they've done before so there's there's an element of that too obviously mm-hmm. for the most part uh, we, we've been doing fairly well he's he's playing well again and, and he's happy and, and, and likes the, what he's doing and sort of the direction that he's going. So it's, uh, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun and I have to give a lot of credit to him too because I think people often forget, but coaches were only as good or as effective as, as our players. And you need players that are motivated, that buy into the sort of vision and you collaborate and find, find the areas that you want to improve and everyone needs to be on the same page and then you have to go to work. And, and do that. And, and he's been great. He's bought into everything. He's been really focused and serious and put in a lot of work to, to get himself back in the top 10, both on the practice court and with tournament scheduling and, and battling out some tough matches when you're having tough days and getting the win. And, you know, it's been fun. Yeah, no, that sounds, that sounds good. I've always wondered, is it harder to actually coach, like, let's say someone of his level where, you know, they're a potential Grand Slam contender and top 10 player compared to you know, a junior that's 50 in the world for ITF, as an example? Yeah, well, I mean, they, there's a lot of commonalities. I mean, at the end of the day, as, as a coach, you're always going to do your best 
to try to find ways to improve your player in the in the short term for their performances and also in the long term from a development perspective. And obviously, depending on where players are in their journey, there's either more or less development ahead. So, so in a lot of ways, coaching is the same, whether it's a, a young player coming up or whether it's a top player. But obviously, the expectations, the pressures, the stakes are different. Mm-hmm. And um, everyone's individual, so you've always got to take that individual approach. You've got different personalities, different game styles, different goals that, that, that players have. But uh, I think ultimately, coaching, coaching is coaching. So if you, can, if you can do a good job coaching a good ITF junior, you can certainly... You can coach a top player too. The key is getting the trust and the buy-in from that top player to really buy into what you're you're trying to get them to do. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. So it sounds like obviously building the relationship with the the student is is super important. If you don't have the trust and the respect from them, then no matter how good of a coach you are, you probably it's not, not going to work, right? Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing in all coaching at all levels. Players have got to feel like they are priority and that you're trying to do everything to, to help them and, and there's no big egos involved. And you, you do need the respect. And that's why sometimes you see the top guys, they do go to coaches that are former uh, legends of the game or top 10 players themselves because that's where they feel the trust or the respect comes because someone's been there and done it before. And that there is a lot of value in that too. So if, if you're not one of those people, like in, in my case, you, you've got to be better maybe in some other areas or you've got to be able to, you know, have developed yourself and your own philosophies and your own knowledge and skill set so that you can display that you have the ability to to help those, those players at that level. And as soon as they, they see that and they respect that and they, and they see that you're helping them, then, then, you know, the process is much easier from there. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, do you think that it, it's important for let's say someone that has a great playing history and they achieved you know, a top 10 ranking, does that mean they are going to be a better coach than someone, let's say, that hasn't achieved that or not? Yeah, I mean, it's, there is some, some former number one, two, three uh, ranked players in the world that are phenomenal coaches and they do an amazing job. And then there's also some that honestly, they, they, they don't know what they're doing. They were great players, but they don't necessarily know how to get the best out of somebody else. So it's like anything. I still believe that from a coaching perspective, nothing, nothing beats experience and nothing beats learning. And obviously, if you've been a top player, you can impart a lot of knowledge and you've been in the same situation that players have been in. So you can help and you can do a lot, but uh, it's, not always the, it's not always the best thing. Sometimes the coaches that have made mistakes along the way with younger players and learned and evolved and improved themselves and over many years that they can be just as good, if not better in a way, because they're, uh, they're coaches. You know, we, we've seen many coaches over, over history that haven't been great players that have become very successful in, in the coaching in, in, in all sports. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there's, there's always exceptions to every rule. And, um, you know, if you can have Ivan Lendo in your team, why not? I mean, he, he's got a, a massive amount of knowledge to, to, you know, to share uh, given his journey as a player. But uh, it's not the only option. And I think more players are, are seeing that now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I agree. It seems since you've ever, since you've started with Monfils, his mindset has changed, and he's had some incredible performances. And as we just mentioned before, he's back into the top ten. What's changed? Oh, you know, he's very motivated. He, you know, he's got some some big goals. Obviously, he's had a lot of good coaches over his career, so he's got a lot of experience. He's he's played on the tour for sixteen, almost seventeen years. So you've got maturity, you've got experience, you've got a real understanding, and then you've got. The fact that he's got some big goals and that he knows that 
the only one way to achieve those goals is by improving in some areas and, 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 and we've identified those. And he's been, yeah, he's been working hard. He's been very motivated and um, he's been uh, putting in the work. And that's as a coach, you, you can't beat that. You know, you can do an amazing, sometimes you can do an amazing job as a coach and you don't get the results and it's, it's tough. And sometimes you can do not that good a job and you can get good results too. It's, it, a lot of it is dependent on the player and then how you can collaborate and work from there. And, and I give him a lot of credit in, in everything that he's doing at the moment. It's, it's a big improvement, I, I feel. And I feel like um, the way he's playing, the way he's using his talent and his speed is, is, is a little bit more effective and efficient, which is, you know, also important as the body's getting older. Yeah, yeah, very true. Uh, but like he, he seems to credit. I think I was reading an article about it. He wasn't like he wasn't playing that well, and he wasn't feeling that good out there. But he said he didn't want to let you down, and he, you know, that's pretty much how he got through the match. So it seems like ever since you've come into his team, he's he seems that he's changed like his mentality a bit more, where he doesn't like it's a much bigger picture instead of just him. I mean, obviously, any time you've got a team and and you've got a goal and you and you're invested in that. And you're you're pushing each other to to, to try to achieve that goal as a, as a collective group. And obviously, there's going to be days where yeah, you might not be feeling your best, but you know that you know it's a, it's a team effort in a way. Obviously, tennis is a bit different because the player's the one that's out there, and we don't hit the ball for them. We can't do anything once the match starts to a certain degree. And so yeah, it's uh, I think also it, it, when you've put in a lot of work and when you've set high goals, you've almost you've put that back onto yourself. You've taken on that responsibility to say, well, if I want to be ranked in this position or if I want to be a contender for this well I've got to get through these moments I've got to push through these hard days I've got to get these kind of wins I've got to win these type of tournaments to put myself in that position so that's why I think goals are important and understanding what you're trying to do and where you're trying to improve because I think then you almost always hold yourself accountable to that we all work hard so we 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 also have high standards for each other so very true. I like that. With the type of goals you're setting, are they result-based or are they process-driven? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's at a stage of his career, it's, it starts to become a little bit more of result-based goals. But goals, you know, performance goals within that to actually get you to achieve those results. You know, it's somewhat of a combination. Um, he's got X amount of years left to play. He's, he's playing at a – this year, he's playing at a top three or four level. And, um, you know, the goal is to try to win the, the big events, be in the top four or five in the world. So obviously there is a result aspect to that. But we always bring it back to the, the process and what do you have to be doing to put yourself in, in contention to achieve those goals. So it's, it's a balance. Younger, younger players, you would, you would have definitely much more performance-based. It's just, it's just a reality. When you get near the end of your career and you want to win some big tournaments, that you can't escape it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very true. When you let's say you're analyzing a game plan against, let's say, yeah, someone like a Djokovic, like what, what are you particular particular looking for? Like, are you basing it on Monfils's strengths and weaknesses to match up well against Djokovic's game style? Every player he plays, I spend a, an extreme amount of time looking at videotape of, of that player in different situations, and I look up a lot of a lot of stats, use a lot of Hawkeye stuff, and get a lot of good data and information. Um, I have a system in my computer with notes on every player in the world and and I go back through those and look uh, at uh, things that have worked in the past. I look at head-to-head last time they played or if they've ever played before or if they haven't played, I'll look at other players that have a similar game style and and different. Yeah, I put a lot of work in and then I look at, first of all, where does the strengths match up and and what areas of the court are are important and, and what's important to 
to do when because some players have set patterns about what they do in certain moments and others don't. And, um, you know, you want to make sure that all the important moments in a match that you get to play them more on your terms than the other person's terms. So you have to understand what, what situations are going to be good for you and what situations are going to be good for them and then make sure that you, you tilt the balance in your favour as much as possible. I tend to do a lot, of, a lot of work and then I sort of break it down into a very simplified few, few basic things that we really focus on and then we discuss and we set out like a little bit of a plan as to what we want to, what we want to see happen in the match. Mm-hmm. I see. So a lot of your time as like, obviously as his coach is spent analyzing opponents when you're on the road, this is and playing tournaments, analyzing his opponents and what type of game plan he should have. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the grand slams, I don't sleep much. I think that's what a lot of coaches don't understand as well, that it's not so much what you can pick up on your student. It's also what you can pick up on, you know, and, and identify on other players and what type of plan would work against them. Which no, is, absolutely. And it's so important. It, it's also about matchups. You know, some players, they, they might not be as good, but they just play well against your particular game style or in, other, in, in the opposite, your game style matches up really well against somebody else's game style and you beat them a lot, but yet they're a higher ranked player or have won more big tournaments. So the matchup aspect of game styles and, and the conditions are, are always big factors in this as well. So, you know, I always believe that it's really important to be well prepared and, and I also make sure I do the research because I never want to send, you know, I never want to give Gail information or previously Matt Ebden or, or Radu Albot or, you know, any of the players over the years. I don't want to give them information that they, they go out, to the, out there on the court and it, and it feels like it's wrong. I, I want to make sure I've done my, my due diligence and, uh, you know, we, we're very much on the, on the same page as to what we're expecting and what needs to happen out there. Mm. Yeah, that's good. That's interesting. And have you ever sent them on the court like with something like wrong information or, or not? Uh, for the most part, no. I mean, if sometimes you, you, you get the odd, you get the odd situation, you know, you've got very good players and statistically you're expecting on certain moments that they're going to do certain things and they kind of get, you know, they wise up to you and they start making adjustments and changes. So then you get the odd look sometimes, but, uh, <laughs> you know, for the most part, the statistics are also, you've got a bit, you know, you can't be a hundred percent statistical based, with your stuff because good players, you know, the stats, so they serve in a certain place on break points, but then in against you in big moments, they realize and they, they change. So you, yeah. you've got to always have that flexibility and that understanding. So for me, I try to always use the data and the stats to help me get a sense of everything and then make sure that the players are sort of well prepared for the, the, the other things that can develop on the court and just make sure that they're always, always able to bring it back to finding the solution to get things more on their terms and, and tip the scales in their favor. And are you, are you sending them out there with a couple of different plans? Like let's say A, B, C, D in case A, B and C don't work. No, I mean, to be honest, it's really quite simple in the end. I mean, all the hours of video I watch and all the data I go through, but it, it comes down to three, four very simple things that we focus on. And then maybe certain aspects on big points it, it, against certain people, you have to do something a little bit, different or a lot of it has to do with yourself you know the mindset that you're in in certain moments to to capitalize and get the ball to a certain area of the court early in the point and you know we put a lot of in-depth detail into the preparation but the actual plan itself is really quite simple because at the end of the day it's a tennis match and it's uh, 
you know, it's lines, a, a court and a net, and you've got you to put the ball in the court and you've got to get the ball over the net. And, you know, you don't want to make it too complicated. I, I, you know, simplicity is the key to execution, really, isn't it? So mm-hmm. you, you've got to find a way to get all that data and information that you've got into a very simple, basic scenario that a player can easily go out there and execute because it's only a plan is only as good as the execution. So if it's too complicated, it's like, how do you execute that? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. And have you, have you found that let's say in your experiences, let's say someone's playing a Novak, like a Djokovic who's number one in the world. Have you found that they can respect the player too much and then lose the match before they go out there? Absolutely. What advice are you giving your player before they go out there when they're playing someone that's ranked so highly and so good? Yeah, I mean, it's all about self-belief, self-confidence and, um, and sort of understanding that you're playing, you're playing the ball. You're not playing the name or the ranking of the person. Mm. So it's, it's about trusting yourself and, and taking on the situation as it is, as a situation. The ball is in this position of the court. This is my shot that I'm going to go for and, and not overcomplicate. Too many times, like you said, I, f- I find it happens even more so with a player that's ranked 80 or 90 when they play a player that's 20 or 30. They almost lose because they're supposed to. It becomes very mental. Or, or you see the qualifier at a Grand Slam that's played great tennis, won three rounds of qualies, and gets in the main draw, plays somebody ranked 35, just missed being seeded, a good player, and, and they just get killed because it's like, well, how is that possible? They, they, they could win the match, but just mentally they don't maybe believe that they belong there yet or that they can win. For me, it's all about you have to play the, the ball, not the, not the ranking or the name of the person, but obviously it's easier said than done. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It is easier like when we're talking about it, but it's different when you've got, you know, a crowd and you're playing someone that's, you know, one of the greatest. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think self-confidence and self-belief is a big one. So obviously as a coach, if you you have a player who's ranked lower that's playing a much higher ranked player, you want to give them that feeling of, you know, you can do it. Yes, you can. Even if it's sometimes a bit false, where you you're thinking to yourself in the back of your mind, "Geez, I hope they don't get killed," you know. But at the same time, you've got to make them feel like they've got every chance in the world, and they're going to go out there and they're going to give it everything. And and sometimes that's how you get the upsets to happen. It's uh, you know you've got to got to be super confident. You know, you see it. You have there in Australia. I think nobody gives nobody gives the guy enough credit. But Nick Kyrgios, I mean, he has immense self-belief and confidence uh, in big matches against big name players. And that's something that that's really quite special. But uh, unfortunately, the, there's some other things he does that the, the people jump on that instead. But that's a skill in itself. Yeah, that's true. Like he, but he can also, like he loves playing the big moments, but then when he's playing players that, let's say, aren't as good or he doesn't find as fun, like he can lose his concentration completely. Yeah, I mean, look, it happens to everybody. You see, sometimes you see Roger and Novak can do that too. I mean, yes, that's a good point. It does happen. Just the ability to raise the level and not be intimidated by a number one in the world player or something like that. That's that's something quite special. Um, And it's not, uh, I don't think it's something you can necessarily teach, but I think you can definitely improve or you can instill that confidence and belief in, in people. Um, and it's very important. I think every top player in the world has a massive self-belief and high, highest health, self-esteem, self-confidence. And, and that's why they're able to get to where they are. And I think it's the same for every athlete that's super successful. It's, it's finding that balance of sort of self-belief and confidence and almost a little bit of arrogance kind of in a, in a good way, mm. tempered with, a, with a, a good amount of respect and humility. And if you can get that balance right, well, 
then you get these legends of different sports. That's, that's, that's what it looks like. Yeah, that's, that's very true. As coaches, how can we like help our players before they're playing someone, you know, let's say even a junior under 12s is playing number one ranked kid in Australia. How can we help them, you know, to go out there and actually believe they've got a shot? Yeah, I think it's a lot about the way you talk to them. I think it's a lot about what you've been doing in practice and also what sort of plan do you go out there with to play that player. If you go out there with a clear, with a simple, clear plan in mind of, well, I'm going to try to do this more and I think I can expose this area of the court or this shot might break down. And, and if you go out there with a real purpose and you just get out and you focus on executing that purpose and before you know it, you, you know, you're shaking hands and you've won. So I think it, a lot of it is in the... Yeah, the mindset and the, the purpose that you have when you go out there on the court to, to play and to not, you know, not over-respect. I, I, I believe it's very important to be respectful and to respect fellow competitors and, and be a, a fairly humble individual. But at the same time, if, if you're too humble or you respect too much, you, you, you know, you go out on those big courts and you, you get destroyed. So you've got to get that nice balance. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree about that. It's, but it's also hard for some juniors when their parents, as an example, are saying, oh, you know, you're playing this kid. He, his parents pay this much for tennis lessons. He, co- he, you know, does all this. He's had these results. How, like, how can we teach the parents as well to, in a nice way, kind of stay out of it? And, and if they've got nothing nice to say, then it's probably not the right, it's probably best to say nothing. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, parents, Someone once asked me uh, about someone's parents if they were crazy and I said, well, no, but they're just crazy enough because I think for kids to achieve stuff, you you do need a certain amount of a push from the parents sometimes because kids are kids, but it has to be in a positive way. And I think it's a lot about education. I think if 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 we push parents away too much and we tell them to shut up or to not be involved or, you know, I think it actually makes it worse. I think you're better to almost involve them more in the process and educate them in, in what's important so that when they do interact with their kids, because they're going to, I mean, yeah. you can't stop that. They're their kids. They're, they're more educated about what they're saying why, and what they're not saying and, and just understanding the process better. I've always, you know, I've dealt with some really difficult parents over my career in different stages and I've always had more success when I talk to them and I listen to them and I try to educate them and get them to understand that by them, you know, shutting their mouth in the car ride on the way home, that they're being way more helpful than having a crack at the kid for not attacking that short ball forehand that they should have, you know. And it's just, it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's not easy. And, and I think for parents, it's not easy too, because they want their kids to be good. They want them to win. They want them to be successful. And they don't have a clue sometimes at the damage that they can do if they handle things the wrong way. And so it's not necessarily deliberately that they sabotage or mess it up, that it just they're so invested that they, yeah, they can, they can mess it up. That's the reality. Yeah. Well, I guess when your emotions, even on the tennis court, once your emotions get involved, you you know, your thinking's not that clear. You start making emotional decisions rather than actual, you know, practical or, you know, an- analytical decisions, which can, yeah, which can hurt you uh, drastically. Yeah. I mean, you've got to, you've always got to focus on the process, you know, and I always feel like a lot of parents, they, they're too short-sighted. They just see today's win or loss or how are they hitting their backhand today. Uh, they, you know, they hit every backhand in the net and there's a panic attack and they want their kid to hit four million backhands tomorrow. And, and it's like you, you've got to have that long-term process. You've got to have that big picture view and just keep working towards those uh, bigger picture objectives because otherwise you just get lost in the, in the, in the madness of it all. But in saying about like the longer term picture, like, you know, you and I know that tennis can be quite like, I mean, not quite, it's a very expensive sport. And 
how can we explain that to the parents to have the longer term vision when you know they are worried about the short term results and if my child isn't number one in Australia at 14 or in the world then he's probably not going to be a champion like a superstar yeah I mean again it's it's education it's different kids develop at different speeds some some players are 18 years old they're best in the world and, and other players they're, they're nowhere yet but they at 23 they're, they're they're the best in the world or at 26 or 30 you know everyone's journey is a little bit different so you know I always think about it like this if if you take a 12 or 13 year old kid and, and the parents want them to be successful in in a career path so they they, they want them to be a doctor well they're not going to be they're not going to have the level to be a doctor when they're 14 <laughs> they've got to go through years of school and then they've got to go to university and then they've got to go to medical school and then they've got to go through residency and then they've got to you know and even then they're not going to be as good a doctor as they are five more years into the job so mm. i think you've always got to bring it back people forget sometimes in sport they just want sort of instant gratification and, and it's like well there's a process here and uh, you've got to go you can't skip steps you've got to go through the process and, and some kids accelerate through different parts faster than others and then all the kids start comparing the parents start comparing all the kids to each other and and it becomes a circus and i think yeah you, you've got to find a way through through education to to help them understand that it is a process and you know you've got to you've got to be in it for the long the long term really if you if you want to be successful but that's the same you know it's like having a 14 year old kid that gets bad school grades when they're 14 years old and saying oh well they're not going to make it to medical school well, that's still eight years away. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's like you can't judge everything in, in that exact moment. It's, it's the long-term view. And, yeah, it, I'm not going to say it's easy, but I think uh, a lot of parents become more reasonable when they, when they feel like they can talk to you and, and that you'll, you'll hear out their concerns and then you'll be willing to, you know, have that dialogue and educate them. Yep, yep, definitely. I think it's, uh, I personally think it is very important to form a good relationship with the parents because at the end of the, at the end of the day, you're going to be a team together. It's not just the coach that gets, you know, the student successful because of the coach. No, the, the player is successful because, you know, the people around him or her. And it's not just the coach, like the parents, like you said, played the most, probably the most important role. They're with them all the time. So you yeah, can- absolutely. I mean, as a coach, you spend so many hours a day with the, with the players and especially when the players are younger and, and, you know, they're mostly with their parents and their parents are the ones that drive them to the, to the tennis center, that drive them to tournaments, that everything is, is, is with the parents. So how the parents are speaking with the kids, interacting, what they're doing is, is a major thing. I mean, I've had some funny stories over the years, but I even actually literally was teaching a parent how to, how to be a coach because I knew that they were actually going out and spending hours and hours on the court with their kid mm. outside of the academy's hours, if you like, doing stuff that was completely unproductive. It was like counterproductive. Uh, and yes, I ended up yes. basically bringing them in and saying, hey, look, if you're going to go out and spend all these hours feeding feeding your son for, how to hit forehands, well, let's let's at least make sure that you're doing it the right way, um, and and <laughs> had him feeding the ball the right way, and you know doing the right kind of stuff because I knew that I couldn't stop him from doing it, no matter how many times I told him it was a bad idea. So I just decided to try to control the quality of what was being done and improve that because that was the only way to to have an impact. Yeah, see, and that's, I think that's the, the beauty of coaching and being flexible in your approach and having, you know, kind of like a growth mindset about it all is, you know, okay, the parent's not going to let it go. Then you need to find out a way, like find an edge on how you can make it productive, which is what you did. You actually educated the parent on how to coach. 
Um, yeah, and I think when you have young kids, like young developing players, I think as a coach, you, you've got to take on a bit of responsibility for somewhat coaching the parents too and educating the parents because, you know, they're the ones that are going to most likely have a lot to do with whether th- this player becomes a success or not because they can either really be great parents and, and, and supportive role and, and push when they need to and be really supportive when they need to and get the balance right or they can completely stuff it up more than you as a coach can. Mm. You could take 10 kids and you could do the same job with all of them. And the, the ones that are going to be successful are probably the ones that had the better balance and situation with their parents. And, and, and so as a coach, if you, if you want to make players successful, you've got to be willing to, and it's hard sometimes, I can tell you, but you've got to be willing to sort of coach the parents a little bit as well as the player because they're in it for the first time too. That's why you often see, it's quite funny, but when you look at successful tennis siblings, Often the younger one is better. Okay, the McEnroe's is a different story, but in many cases, the younger one ends up better because the mistakes that get made with the older one, they've learned their lesson by the second time around. Yes. So it's like when, when you've got these young kids going in, the parents are like, they're, they're rookies too. You know, they're, they're first time kind of, their kid's really good. They're not used to this, what to expect. You know, I've always found it's been more helpful to be able to, spend that time and just invest a little energy in coaching the parents and educating them. Mm. No, no, very, very true. I like that. It's, it is important to have that team aspect with them and make sure that you're all on the same page. And as you said before, making sure everyone's got the same buy-in. Very yeah. Good. And look, there's, there's also times where you, you, you have to be tough with the parents and, and tell them, no, you're wrong or you're being unreasonable or, you know, you're doing it the wrong way. And in some cases you have to, you know, there's, I've done it myself. I've, I've basically said to some parents, okay, thank you. We can't help you. You know, you're just, you're impossible to deal with. But in most cases, I think that you can find a common ground because at the end of the day, those parents, you have the same goal. You want to help that boy or girl to be the best player they can possibly be. So you're you're invested in the same goal. So it's just about finding the trust and and finding a way to to make a a successful project with that tennis player. Mm. No, no, that's a good point. What, what do you think are the key steps in transitioning from juniors to the ATP tour? Let's say you coach, because you coached Barankas when he was the number one junior in the world, right? Like you pretty much got him to that stage? Yeah. What, like, because it took him some time after that to transition onto the ATP tour. Because I remember watching him and he's a smaller guy. So it was always going to be a little bit harder, like for him to get into the, you know, let's say have the same success as he did on the junior tour. But how did you do it? Yeah. I mean, it took him a few years because, uh, as you said, he's, uh, it was a little bit smaller and, it, and, you know, it's an interesting process. I remember the Orange Bowl 18s, uh, he was fighting to be number one in the world at the end of the year, so he needed to win it and playing Grigor Dimitrov in the final and destroyed him, like absolutely destroyed him. It was like two and two and it was an amazing match. But, you know, a few years later, play the same guy and it's not the same story, you know, because of the, the type of game style and the, and the physical size. So it's a process and, and it takes time. And I think you have to be, you have to be very invested. You have to be very determined and you have to also have a sense of sort of patience and process because a lot of the, a lot of the, the kids that are successful in juniors, they just expect it to be somewhat easier than it's going to be to transition because juniors creates a false sense of security in the ITF juniors as well, because although it's important to play, you only, uh, your, your rankings based on six tournaments and, you also move up every year by default because the 18-year-old kids that are older than you have aged out. 
So if you're ranked 50 and they all age out ahead of you, you're now 25 by default, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, it's a little bit of a false sense of security as to how easy it is to climb. And I think uh, a lot of juniors, they struggle because they get out there, start playing the futures and the challenges, especially or the ATP qualities or WTA. And they realize, well, geez, this level is pretty tough and I've got to be very professional. I've got to work very hard. I've got to be very dedicated. I've got to play a full season of events. And often when you're, when you're coming up, you've got to play more tournaments than the, the top players are playing because you've got to get more matches, experience, gain your points, and you've still got to develop, so you've got to find the balance. So I think a lot of people just get, get the balance wrong. And I think some kids just, yeah, they're not always willing to, to change or adapt or accept the reality of where they actually are and how they're going to bridge the gap and improve their level, actually, because you don't just go, okay, I'm number one in the world, put me to be number 20 in the men's or women's. It doesn't work like that. You've got to earn your spot. So you've got to be able to look at yourself and say, okay, I've got to get better here. I'm losing matches against these stronger players because of this or that. And you've got to be really real and you've got to go to work and, and put a lot of work in. And, and Richard definitely definitely did that. His process took him a while. He used to be an amazing returner in, in juniors. And then in the men's game, he struggled for quite a while with the returns because the level of serving was just way different and especially the level of second serves, the quality. So he struggled a bit because his strength in juniors was somewhat neutralized a bit in the next level. So he had to make that, that adaptation and it took a little bit of physical and mental work and time to get there. Is most of the, let's say, from the junior to the senior, is most of it physical, like the change? I, I think it's, uh, you know, the junior tennis, if you take boys and men, there's a quite a difference in the physicality on the ball. The, the, the quality of shot, the, mm. the depth, the, the heaviness of the ball is quite physical. And then obviously the physicality of the movement, uh, the intensity that the points are played at is, is definitely a jump up. And then also the mental aspect that just the guys are tough. They're, they're fighting and competing every single point. There's nothing for free. You know, I think that takes a while. In juniors, you get a few free points here or there. Someone gets down. They're not quite there for a while. Then you go play a challenger tournament first second round and the guys are hungry and they're fighting and they're clawing tooth and nail to to try to get the get the result and i think it's yeah from a mental perspective it's quite different as well so it's, it's a physical and a mental um transition to be honest yeah i see so it's not so much about like the skill level it's more like what you said the the mentality of okay i'm not going to give away any cheap points and if i do then i'm going to bounce back very quickly plus you know how fast they are how strong they are they probably don't get pushed off the baseline as much when they're in control and all of that, I'm assuming. Yeah, and it's, it's a question of your game style too. You know, sometimes you see players that have a that are extremely talented or they have a lot of firepower in their game. They can sometimes come through faster because they can somewhat blast their way through. And then players that are maybe smaller or that, you know, their game style is a little bit more working points, playing longer rallies. It's way more physical. A lot more can happen, you know. There's a lot more opportunities. Your opponent also gets to hit a lot more balls. Yeah, they, they can, that can sometimes take a little bit longer to, to come through. It, it depends. Again, self-confidence is a big part of transition as well. Mm. And why do you think that all the juniors don't transition into a successful career on the ATP or the WA Tour? Is it, is it mainly the mental side, the not having enough belief? Yeah, I think, like I said earlier, it comes down to, I think a lot of them think it's going to be easier than it actually is. They, they just assume because I was a great junior player, very successful, that I'm just going to become a, a successful professional. And it 
you know, it doesn't work like that. There's, there's hundreds, thousands of players out there that you're fighting for that, you know, to, to be one spot in front of them. I think it, it comes down to determination. It comes down to the work ethic that you have, obviously self-confidence. And I think also the longevity, the, the determination. A lot of players will go out there a year or two after juniors and they won't maybe get those instantaneous results and it won't, it won't be as easy as they thought it was going to be. And then they, they get negative or they don't keep improving or they just sometimes quit. They just feel like they can't do it. And I think it, it becomes a lot about the mindset as well as to what, you, what are you willing to go through? How much are you willing to suffer? What are you willing to improve? How hard are you willing to work? And, you know, there's also on the, on the other side of it, there's some kids that, you know, the tennis tour is not as glamorous and as lovely as people think it might be. It's a tough life. There's a, you know, you're traveling from place to place, hotel to hotel, living out of your bag. You know, you're, you spend as much time in the airport as you do on the tennis court. And, and it's, it, it can be a tough uh, life. It can be a little bit uh, sometimes demotivating for some players. And if you've been a really successful junior and then it doesn't come easy, and it becomes a bit of a grind and it's, you know, tough. And a lot of players also just can't handle it. That's why there's a, that's why there's a top 100 that is making, uh, making a living and, and not a top 1,000 or 10,000 because the structure of the game and it, it's just, it is. It can be a tough road and it depends a lot on your determination and your mindset as to if you're willing to go through that journey all the way. So do you think it's better than to get let's say as soon as you're able to, let's, I think it's 14 or 15, start playing the, the futures events. So that way you can understand that it is a tough slog instead of playing the juniors and, you know, having a lot of success as a junior. And then, as you said, the transition, you think it's going to be easy, but it's actually 10 times harder. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always about finding a balance when it comes to the, the sort of scheduling stuff, because I'm, I'm a, a big believer that you do need to play juniors and the junior ITF pathway is good and it's proven. I mean, all the, not all, but a large percentage of the, of the top players that have come through over the years have, have come through that, especially more recently, probably the, the last 20 years, especially. And you do need to learn how to win. You do, you do need to learn how to compete under pressure being a, a number two seed or a number five seed or a number one seed in the tournament. You need, you do need to have that self-confidence and that self-belief built by lifting some trophies, winning some tournaments, feeling like you're uh, you belong in the upper echelon with your peers. That's going to give you that belief that you can, and that confidence to, to make a transition. But I think you do have to balance it with the, with getting the players out playing the, the ITF, um, world and they've changed the name so many times the itf world tour i think it is now um you, you do need to get out there and play those at 15 and 16 years old and you know compete in the in those tournaments start to get some professional ranking points and some experience at the professional level it, you just need a good balance if you just only go to play professional tournaments sometimes you you don't learn to win you get beaten up sometimes just because it's it's physical or you're just not mature enough and your focus isn't good enough yet and, and it, can, it can actually lower the self-confidence. So, you know, you don't learn to win, you just learn to lose. And, and, and winning can be a habit too sometimes uh, in a lot of cases. So you've got, to, you've got to find the right balance and you've got to constantly adjust it. And I think, you know, if I, if I look at, you know, as an example, Barankis, he had a good balance. He, he won some futures tournaments at 16, 17 years old and he won junior tournaments and he was playing challenges when he was still number one junior in the world. And so he had a nice balance of, of, of that. So he was, he was very aware of what lied ahead, but he also got that 
confidence from from winning and developing and and playing with some pressure and a target on your back sometimes. Yeah, yeah. See, I think it's and a lot of people like I guess psycho like psychologically kind of prefer to play as the underdog. So that way, you know, they if they lose, they've got nothing to lose. But if they're playing and they, yeah, yeah, it's way yeah. easier. Yeah, so you made a very good point there about playing, you know, juniors and having a target on your back um, and learning to deal with pressure. Because even if you transition your success into the ATP tour, like you know, you're only as good as, as an example with Novak. He has, you know, he's got a target on his back. He needs to keep it up, otherwise, you know, he's not going to be number one. Absolutely, and that's tough. I mean, people don't realize, but you know, there's no free matches. Everybody out there. Top 300 and what? Everybody's good, mm. especially, you know, you'd start looking at top 100, top 50 players. They're all really, really exceptional tennis players and anybody can lose to anybody on the given day. So there's always that, that pressure and, and, and that stress that the top players go through. And you've got to better handle that because that's part of the, that's part of the deal, you know? You do have a target on your back and you know what? You want the target on your back because if you're going to be good, that's what you're there for. Yes. Yeah, I love that actually. Well. Wow. It's amazing. And at what age do you believe that juniors should start to specialize in tennis? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's somewhat individual, I think. I mean, there's a lot of scientific research that shows that if you specialize too early, that uh, you, you miss out on some of the athletic development. So it's good to play lots of different sports as a young kid. You know, you develop different a- aspects of your athleticism by doing all those different sports and it's fun and it keeps the whole experience from not being too, too stressful. And then, you know, you specialize maybe a little bit later on when you, when you sort of, as a kid, it probably a lot of kids, they reach that point at different stages. Some kids at 11, they want to be just play tennis and some kids are still 14 or 16 and they're still playing a few other sports. And, but I would say as a general rule, 12, 13 years old, 14, maybe it's okay too. If, if you start to maybe uh, specialize a bit more in one particular sport. But it doesn't mean that you still don't play other sports. You know, you might say at 12 or 13, well, you know, I I, want to take my tennis really seriously and I'm going to really focus a lot and spend a lot of time on my tennis. But you might still like to play a bit of footy or you might like to to shoot a few basketball hoops and, and stuff with your mates on the weekend or, you know, at school or different things. So it's not like, you know, you shouldn't actually shut off other sports uh, in a way. You should always be a little bit open to you know, doing other things. And even as you get older and professional players, you know, we, we often use other sports as ways to create a physical training sessions and, you know, develop other skill sets. So, so I think it's, uh, you know, it's a little bit different for everybody, but as a general rule, I would say young players play all the sports you can. And then as you start to specialize, still be open to doing a few other things as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's, I do believe personally in my own philosophy that it is important to play as many other sports as you can uh, for as long as possible until you decide, you know, what, which pathway you want to go down. So that way, you know, you do, you keep yourself engaged in the sport as well. Like uh, there's a lot of burnout. It's also, we we don't give enough credit to kids sometimes. I think, you know, a lot of kids, they know what they want to do. If a kid says to you, I don't want to go play soccer, I want to I want to play tennis on Saturday afternoons as well now, not soccer. You've got to let the kid do it. So I think, you, you know, we've, we've got to – some kids are more mature or they know what they want at, at different ages more than others. And, yeah, I think we've got to be, we've got to be you know, as coaches and parents, we've got to be willing to, to be open to that a bit too. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Can you take me back to a time where you, you were coaching and it was very challenging for you and how you got past that challenge? It could have been when you were running the business or, you know, with Monfils or Barankis. 
Yeah, I mean, there's all all elements of coaching, you know, have different challenges. But uh, I had one particular challenge with a with a WTA player. Sounds very stereotypical when it's, it's not meant to be, but from Eastern Europe, and um, fantastic player, one of the best in the world for the age, and really doing some great stuff. But really challenging situation with the parents, you know, abusive. And uh, that, that was one of the most challenging things I've ever been through is to how do you support a player when you don't support the way the parents are behaving mm. and finding a way to try to help the player to do better in spite of all the challenges that they face. And, and that was something that was, uh, I learned a lot in the process and it was really quite difficult to navigate those waters a little bit, to be honest, and uncomfortable at times as well. So yeah, that would be one of my most challenging moments. And did you, did you walk away from that relationship? I did in the end. Yes. I I realized that no matter how much I persevered or tried to educate that I was never going to be able to change the sort of the the cultural or the mentality of, of, of the particular individuals. And, and I just said, look, I'm, I can't, I can no longer condone what I'm seeing on a daily basis. So yeah, I'm sorry. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I actually respect that quite a lot because it is important to respect yourself, obviously, as a coach. Like you are being contracted and hired to help other players. But if you don't believe in what you're seeing, then, you know, sometimes it is it is good to, you know, fire, let's say, as an example, fire the, the parents or the player. Um, no, absolutely. You have to be very true to your own standards because the, you know, the standards that you accept are, are what your standards really are. So, yeah, you have to be true to yourself. And, you know, I've always believed that you have to persevere to a certain degree and try to, to make those, influ- have that influence or create that change. And if, and if it's not coming, then, yeah, you, you've, got to, you've got to come back to your own philosophy and your own standards and be true to yourself, especially as a coach, because that's all you've really got at the end of the day, especially when you go through careers of coaching many different players. What really matters is, is your own integrity. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. No, I love that. At the moment, being in like the, let's say the lockdown situation, what, what are yourself and Monfils working on at the moment or what can you do? Oh, well, from my perspective, I've just been looking back through the matches he's played and different things that we're working on and just trying to identify some things, some things against particular opponents that might be useful if we get to play again in, in this, this year. But um, <laughs> we've had some discussions about that and just trying to keep somewhat of a physical maintenance or physical base, which has been challenging because where he is in Europe, everything's shut. Clubs, gyms, sports facilities, everything is, is closed. So there's not really any option except for home gym, limited home gym stuff that they've got. So yeah, trying to, trying to just stay positive and, and maintain the body a little bit. And also I think it's important to rest. The, the tour is very rigorous. And even this year we, we didn't have much of a preseason because with the Davis Cup ending so late and then straight into the ATP Cup in January. So it's also good to get a bit of a rest as well. A forced rest, unfortunately, it's not good timing for us, but it's not for anyone. Mm. So you, you do need to rest because tennis players have a pretty vigorous schedule and uh, he's doing some streaming. Some, he, he's, a, he's a good gamer and he, he likes gaming stuff. So he's doing some streaming on Twitch. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So do you guys stay in touch every day? We talk on a regular basis, not every day. We might message and stuff, but uh, we, we talk on sort of more of a weekly basis and then messages in, in, in between the week and stuff, yeah. Okay. Keeping track on each other and, and what's going on. We had a few we had a few bike competitions early into the lockdown, you know, how many 
how many kilometers you can go in a, in a certain time frame in a certain gear on the stationary bikes and stuff that we've got at home. So yeah, we, we had a bit of fun here and there too. Ah, uh, yes, yes. No, that's fantastic. Liam, where can people reach you if they want to get in contact with you? I'm, I'm aware that you just started a, like a, a virtual website for coaching and things like that, which is fantastic. But just for those who don't know, yeah, where could they get in contact and potentially yeah, sign up? Yeah, I just actually during this lockdown period, I, I had some, the players, uh, some of the guys I've coached over the years, push me a little bit to, to come up with um, some player development information. So I made a video series. Uh, there's 32 videos, I think, on the, on the website and uh, put them up online. It's uh, lcstennis.com. And um, there's some free videos up there to sort of get an idea of what it's all about. And then there's uh, an option to, to purchase a bundle of uh, 30 videos, just all sort of player development process um, information, tutorial-based stuff that players, parents, coaches can all watch. There's something for everybody in there and, and some good takeaways yeah, it, it, just, it, was a, it was a fun project to do. It was quite tough. But, uh, yeah, I hope to provide some, some good content and, uh, and give some, you know, share some information because, like I said at the beginning, a lot of people helped me during my career. And you learn a lot over many years coaching, and I'm still learning. And you sort of want to share that knowledge a bit and give back a little bit to a certain degree. And, you know, if, if some players can find it or parents or younger coaches can find it to be some good quality, useful information that might help them on their journey, then that's great. And that's sort of what we set out to do. No, fantastic. I, I did check it out and I think it's I think it's amazing what you've done on there with all the videos and, and it actually what we spoke about today about educating parents as well. Like I definitely would recommend it to parents out there wanting to just get a bit more insight into, you know, you've got a lot of knowledge and experience. So it would be good to learn from you. And I've definitely learned a lot from you today. So I really uh, appreciate that, Liam. Appreciate that. Yeah, trying to trying to create some some quality content. There's a lot of stuff on the internet, and some of it's great, but there's a lot of garbage as well. So mm. it's trying to you know put something of a reasonably good quality product out there. So no, exactly, exactly. Well, Liam, thank you so much for your time today. It means a lot, and I'm sure that the listeners will definitely get a lot out of your experiences. I uh, I wish you and Monfils nothing but the best in your partnership. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it, and uh, thank you for having me. And there you have it, folks. I hope that you all got some serious value out of that episode. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share the love by subscribing, sharing it with a friend, and leaving a review. If you're wanting to reach out or stay up to date with us, check out our Facebook and Instagram page at Spark Tennis Oz. See you next week.